Hi, this is Megan McHugh, and this is the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website. G'day, welcome aboard the Starship Zero G science fiction, fantasy and historical radio for episode number 1295. I always like saying niner. (laughs) (laughs) It is entitled today, The Last Home House by the Sea. And our podcast title is, and I'm trying to make a word up out of um, pod and quarantine, so I'm going for podotine, <laughs> which I swear to the force sounds like some kind of Star Wars made-up name. Yeah, that's all right. That's how we roll here. Yeah. Well, how, who is it rolling? It's Rob Jan. And Megan McHugh. And the first thing we're looking at today on Zero G, uh, the rather sad news that Sir Ian Holm Cuthbert has uh-huh. died. Uh, the the actually, I I think I call him a pretty great English actor. Oh yeah, absolutely. Born on the twelfth of September, nineteen thirty one, and died on the nineteenth of June this year. Uh, now this. We do quite a few memoriams on Zero G, and this one hurts more than most because Sir Ian was one of those actors who, for me, for my generation at least, felt quite ubiquitous. Every time you watch a a genre film, there he'd be in the background or in the foreground sometimes. So Sir Ian, his dad was a a psychiatrist. and I'm, this is almost like I'm not surprised to hear that he was uh, working on electroshock therapy. Oh, because one of the one of the things about Sir Ian is that we think of him as this gentle sort of character actor, mm. but he's played more than his fair share of really diabolical villains. <laughs> he can go dark when it's needed, for sure. Oh yeah, um, his mother was a nurse. So there you go, you've got the whole medical background going for him. So he ended up um, having a, a sort of an encounter with um, a Royal Shakespearean actor, sorry, a mm. Royal Shakespeare actor, and kind of got into training so that he'd get into the uh, the Royal Academy in, over in the UK. So he did get a place there in the 1950s, and then he had to go up off to uh, national service as you did back then, when he uh, got to be a lance corporal serving over in Austria. So he actually got uh, onto stage well before he got into television and movies, which mm. which I, I kind of think it shows. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, now, while he was there uh, in the Royal Shakespeare Company, <laughs> no less, he uh, got to do Richard III in a BBC serial about the War of the Roses, and then he appeared in uh, Moonlight on the Highway in 1969. So he started getting like these um, 
little roles in films, minor ones, but not too far from some of the Shakespearean early ones that he'd done on stage, like, you know, second steer, spear carrier from the left, that kind of thing. <laughs> oh, so Ian. He, yeah. So he was in – I'll stop calling him Sir Ian now. I sound a bit too, <laughs> a bit too monarchist there. Um, oh, What a Lovely War, which is one of those – uh, great um, anti-war plays and musicals too, actually, in 69. Uh, Mary Queen of Scots, Young Winston in 1972. And then in 1967, um, he uh, – 1968, I think, actually, more to the point. Um, I think I saw him first in a movie called The Bofors Gun. Okay. A Bofors is a kind of a, an anti-aircraft gun where he played one mm-hmm. of the, uh, the people manning it. And it was a very tr- – tight little drama uh, set in barracks and um, I think, oh, going back a long way here, Nicole Williamson was uh, one of the the, uh, the characters, that he, one of the actors that he was playing off in that okay. one, which is kind of significant because he'd later appear with him in, um, in the film Robin and Marion uh, mm. where they were in that one later on, much later. So, okay, in 1978 he played J.M. Barry in uh, the miniseries The Lost Boys. Okay. And I can actually see that. Uh, he, had, <laughs> he had that sort of face where he could play every man, but he particularly seemed to be suited for playing authors. Mm, like a scholarly look or something. Yeah, a little bit. Um, and also um, uh, in 1976, that's where he played uh, – King John in the in the movie Robin and Marion, which is a, a, one of the finest motion pictures I've ever seen. Oh, uh, beautiful score by John Barry and just fine acting, and it's all about the twilight of the uh, Robin Hood and his not so merry men. It's just a beautiful film, and and Ian plays a, a despicable King John, you know. <laughs> well, which, as he should be played. Yeah, you know. <laughs> Really, really awful type. Um, and he also had a kind of a nervous energy that you would see on screen too. Mm. So, all right, 1979. This is the big role really that, that put his name on on the spot, in the spot. The breakout. Yeah. Ash, the android in Alien, Ridley Scott's Alien. Uh, you know, and we, we all know how that, that plays out here on Zero-G. And I can remember sitting in the cinema in 79 uh, watching that film and I was one of like, I don't know, five or six people in this vast cinema because I was a little tacker then (laughs) and it seemed a lot bigger. And it was cold in the cinema and, you know, the wind from the alien world was blowing through the stereo speakers and the ship had its sections that were antiseptic white soon to be sullied with the blood of its poor ill-fated crew and there was Ian Holm playing Ash the the evil android spoiler <laughs> wow well, you know Ash is Ash is a goddamn robot and, <laughs> and he played it so well um mm. he was because it's supposed to be like a, a covert droid um he played it basically as a human being somewhat yeah. Somewhat cold and mm. distant, but nevertheless, not. The, I had no idea he was a robot when I was watching the film the first time. And apart from the fact that he was murderous, 
he was also quite jovial. Yes, uh, that kind of sinister, good, slightly sinister mixture. I mean, what a meaty role to have as your breakout. Yeah. So cool. And, and some of the things that I remember particularly about his performance were these little bits of business. Like mm. he got into the science console pod on the bridge, but before he did that, he like did a little jog on the spot to warm up. <laughs> yeah, sure. And just before he, he tries to... Uh, kill Ripley by choking her to death with a magazine, Oof. shoved down her throat. He Oof. he drums his fingers on the top of his chest as he looks around for a murder weapon. You know, just Diabolical. little bits of business. Mm-hmm. So we'll remember long remember him as as Ash, one of the the great <laughs> killer robots <laughs> of science fiction. Oh, we're going to have. We're going to have so much to apologise to AIs about. <laughs> I know. <laughs> oh, dear. Okay, so now this is one I'm not as well familiar with. Um, mm. We played Sam uh, Masabini in Chariots of Fire. Ah, no, I'm not that familiar either. Yeah. I mean, I know the song. I know it was very well received critically. That's it's it. It's Sportsman. Yes. I mean, I think it's one of those big, it's meant to be that epic, uplifting kind of, um, you know, underdog story. And I think one of the early examples of a really critically acclaimed one that kind of set the scene for future, you know, for that to become a bit of a trend. So Mm. interesting. Yeah. In the 80s, um, he also had uh, a great little part in Time Bandits. Oh, okay. Yeah, and I I do mean little because he played Napoleon Bonaparte. <laughs> and and you know how some some actors get typecast or or they they end up playing historical characters repeatedly. Well, he yes. played Napoleon Bonaparte three times. Oh wow! So that was his type. That's interesting. Okay, I mean it's kind of a random one, but lots of opportunities. <laughs> so he was he was playing uh, Boney in. I was almost going to. I was almost going to um, shorthand it to Nappy, but Boney probably works better. <laughs> Neither of them are that <laughs> that great, but we'll roll with that one. <laughs> As they used to say in those times, "Death to the French." <laughs> that was their that was their toast. Uh, Napoleon in Love in 1974 was a television miniseries. He was in that. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Terry Gilliam's Time Bandits, where again he plays Napoleon, and The Emperor's New Clothes, uh, a much more recent film where he plays. Mm. Um, Napoleon scuppered basically um, after the uh, after he's been imprisoned. So I think it was he imprisoned the first time. I can't remember if it was the first or the second time. <laughs> Maybe the second time. You know, Napoleon was imprisoned a couple of times. Uh, yeah, and he he played the the role with um, with great nuance and with with some something of um, evident charm which napoleon probably did have because he was so beloved by his troops even when he was busy marching them to death in the frozen well he must have had some kind of charisma leadership quality to keep that yeah going yeah (laughs) well anyway ian home managed to plug into that although the time bandits um performance was a bit more wacky as Uh, as as you would expect (laughs) yeah uh, he went on into a, to play another Frenchman, I believe, in uh, Greystoke, The Legend of Tarzan, which is the one with Christopher Lambert, not the recent one with, um, mm-hmm. what's his name? Alexander Skarsgård. Yeah, one of that 
big clan. <laughs> um, and there's this memorable scene in Greystoke where he's teaching, uh, he's teaching Tarzan how to shave with a straight razor, which is fairly perilous when <laughs> you think about it. Yeah. Um, and then he, he sort of um, also branched out into doing some voice acting and actually played Frodo Baggins the voice of Frodo Baggins in a BBC uh, Lord of the Rings adaptation, which... Um, foreshadowing. Foreshadowing, which I actually do have somewhere, but not in a form that I was able to bring to the, the microphone today. Um, so, all right. Uh, and then he, he went circled back to work with Terry Gilliam again in 1985 on Brazil. Oh, gosh. And there, there he played a an absolutely... Uh, Surreal bureaucrat. <laughs> In a surreal film. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and then, then went on to play another author, Lewis Carroll, in um, Dream Child. So, you know, he's this sort of that sort of fella who got those kinds of roles. So let's give you a bit of music here to accompany him. And this is from uh, Jerry Goldsmith's absolutely incredible, incredibly evocative soundtrack from alien and this is the droid and it's pretty damn creepy hmm broadcast mode this is Crichton, the service android aboard the starship zero g on three triple r fm sos sos mayday help i am being held captive by rogue makeup artists who want to cover my face in plaster and latex rubber panic mode get me the hell out of here a bit of horripilating space horror, Jerry Goldsmith's score for Alien, 1979, The Droid. So moody. So yeah. brilliant. <laughs> and a, a tribute to Sir Ian Holm, who died last week, basically. And uh, that was one of his great roles as Ash, the android from Alien. Now, just doing a bit of a, an in-memoriam to Sir Ian today. And along with um, awesome androids, he also played Captain Flewellen in Kenneth Branagh's Henry V in 1989, one of the great Shakespearean movies that established Branagh as an expert in adapting the Bard's work to film. And uh, Ian Home made a very good Welshman in that mm-hmm. one. He also appeared in Mel Gibson's Hamlet in 1990, and I actually think he was the best thing in that, <laughs> playing Polonius. Um, murdered if memory serves me behind a curtain. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. It's Zeffirelli's film, of course, um, the, uh, the third film in his um, – Shakespearean films along with uh, Romeo and Juliet and The Taming of the Shrew. I don't think it's an entirely successful film, but I have no doubt at all that Ian Holm was good in it because I remember that particular performance. Oh, well, there you go. (laughs) That was one of his ones where he was being more humane to people. (laughs) Yeah, sure. He actually made a a pretty terrific uh, King Lear as well, you know, because you always you go through those stages when if you're an old Shakespearean actor, you are going Mm. to play King Lear at some stage. (laughs) Something to tick off the resume. Exactly. He was uh, 
uh, acting in the BBC miniseries The Borrowers. Do you know those? Those are the the ones with the, the little, little yeah little tiny people that borrow things from inside the house. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, exactly. Actually, that's perfect. Um, <laughs> Arietti, you know the uh, mm. um, Miyazaki. Um, so the Ghibli version. Ghibli version of that we're familiar with as well. So some of those um, ones he's playing a, a fairly benign sort of character, but, um, <laughs> you know, especially in um, nine, in uh, The Fifth Element, which is a little bit later, but he was back with Branner again in Mary Shelley's Frankenstein in 1994 where he played um, Victor Frankenstein's dad. Interesting. So, yeah, it was a, it was a small role. But a good one, and and okay. you you needed a counterpoint of humanity to sort of give some um, endpoints to to the son's um, let's say over enthusiastic yeah. dabbling in the arts of mm. um, scientific uh, <laughs> His resurrection <laughs> moral shortcomings. I actually like that film. A lot, <laughs> yeah. of people, a lot of people aren't happy with that film. But I actually believe that they they captured mm. the uh, the zeal of Victor von Frankenstein at his creation. Who else is in that? Um, John Cleese appears in an unlikely sort of uh, role. Uh, I think he's playing the teacher of um, of Baron Frankenstein. Uh, we've also got um, is it Helena Bonham Carter playing the bride? Um, Wouldn't surprise me. And also uh, uh, Robert De Niro. As 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 the monster, interesting. Uh, yeah. So then he went from that to um, the Fifth Element. Oh, but before I before I part from that, I actually saw um, uh, in home playing Frankenstein himself. In oh. A, in, a, in a television series episode, which was quite a, a fascinating kind of take on it, doing the whole the whole it's alive and the sparkling electricity and all that kind of stuff. Walking with hands outstretched and so on. Yeah. No, he wasn't the monster. He was the um, – Oh, doctor. He was Dr. He Frank, was the so. doctor, yeah. Right, right. But he actually does – funny you should say that in the scene where the monster rises um, um, home, actually does walk around with his hands extended in wonder. There you go. <laughs> Maybe the monster copied it afterwards. <laughs> So then he went on to play uh, uh, the priest in The Fifth Element, and that's a lovely bit of business too. Uh, what was it? Vita Cornelius. Yeah. And he interacts so well in um, in The Fifth Element with both Bruce Willis and his assistant and um, uh, Lulu Dallas Multipass. It all it all just works so perfectly, but then you put him in the um, in the same room with the villain, as a mm. you know Jean Baptiste Emmanuel Zorg, <laughs> and there's this extraordinary piece where uh, they've got to um, he's uh, trying to explain something to Zorg, and Zorg is giving him his theory of corporate life, which is dreadful, and you know show me the money and cynical and mm-hmm. all that sort of stuff. And Zorg is eating a cherry and he, he, he chokes on it. And none of his wealth, none of his servants, none of, none of his vast power will do him a bit of good until mm-hmm. Cornelius goes and slaps him on the back and saves his life. Well, there you go. 
A lesson there, no? <laughs> a lesson there. Uh, so then he then he completely switched, and I'll spoil this again. Ha ha! <laughs> In the movie From Hell, adapted from the um, the Alan Moore story, of course. Uh, yes, the op- Ripper, the Ripper Chronicles, or what have you? Mm, opposite um, Johnny Depp, amongst others, and you know this is the spoiler. He plays the Ripper. In oh. it. And he goes from from um, seeming like a you know a fairly contemporary doctor of the time to this mad eyed psychopath. Yeah, <laughs> just he, he turns on a dime, mm-hmm. and that reminds me of of later on, which we'll get to. <laughs> Look, he's got he had so many awards, Baftas, Tonys, nominations for Oscars, all sorts of things. A list, a list, very, very long, actually. So I won't mm, go through mm. those. Um, you know, Emmys and, and so on. Uh, worked with just about everybody. Never appeared in a Doctor Who movie or in, or television series or anything that I can I can find out about. Was he in Harry Potter? I feel like there's they're kind of some of the touchstones for British actors. <laughs> as, as far as I can tell, he wasn't in a, a Harry no, Potter he wasn't. movie at all. <laughs> so, I you know, I mean, I know we can um, we can go there. We could say that he was uh, a wizard, third wizard from the left, but I'm afraid he wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> a wand carrier would be the the way on the left. Yeah. So, okay, so 2001, Bilbo Baggins in the Lord mm-hmm. of the Rings, yes, a role which he played. Um, Several times, including as old Bilbo Baggins later on. And, look, he'd already played Frodo in the BBC radio drama, and now here he was playing Bilbo. And he just does, he is the heart and soul of the early part of the Fellowship of the Rings. Um, and, uh, sorry, not the Fellowship, but the later one. And when he goes... Um, when he does that turning on a dime of being just Bilbo and then Bilbo ring bearer who's been foully influenced by proximity to the unholy object, uh, mm-hmm. it's a simple bit of business, mm. but it's all the more Ooh. chilling. And then he, and then he breaks down because yeah. of the awful burden of that. And it, everybody in the audience, their hearts just break. Yeah. As as indeed they do when Bilbo inevitably journeys into the West, yep. which is um, uh, one of the uh, most poignant moments. Lord of the Rings cops a lot of slack for that extended coda at the end of the film, the, the epilogue, mm. but it's longer in the book. <laughs> and, and, you know, you need that sort of payoff sometimes. Yeah. We've been on a journey together. We want to see, you know, sometimes you need to see a little bit of resolution. Mm, or a lot in the case of the, yes. special, the special extra editions. So he also was um, quite a favourite actor of Harold Pinter mm-hmm. in assorted plays and twice was in um, David Cronenberg films. So here he is intersecting with, um, with the genre all the way through, Naked Lunch Absolutely. And, ex- and Existence. You know, was I mean, he in Naked Lunch? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that movie, honestly, that thing has scarred me. <laughs> <laughs> anything. I mean, it's. <laughs> anything with Cronenberg's name on it. Exactly. Know, involves scarification of some sort. <laughs> 
and and I think one of the uh, the later films, um, the day after tomorrow. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Apocalyptic film. Yes, uh, where he plays a scientist who gets snap frozen, if memory serves me. Oh goodness me! Not even Jake could save him. Oh well. No. So um, he had cancer at one stage and um, Parkinson's disease as well, and um, and yeah, that's uh, what eventually felled the great Sir Ian Holm, and. I think uh, the track that we should play now, just to put a cap on the uh, the end of this sequence of Zero G, is Into the West, Annie Lennox. There's extremely poignant track from The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. This is Sir Derek Jacobi. Zero G or not Zero G, that is the question. Ah, the elements are big and the human voice is very small. Not in the case of Annie Lennox. (laughs) Into the West from The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. Vale, Sir Ian, home. Now, actually, we had a little ID card there at the end of that, Sir Derek Jacobi, and both he and Sir Ian were in the same movie together of um, (sighs) Kenneth Branagh's Henry V. There you go. And they also have another connection. They both they both grew up with um, uh, Laurence Olivier. So, oh, cool. You know, they had both. It's, it's all connected. <laughs> it's, it's, it's all very elemental there. <laughs> all right. So we'll go from one classically trained actor to a series set in Victorian England, in London uh-huh. to be specific. Now, I think I... I spotted this one. Uh, actually, Gail, my partner, spotted this one, I should say. Um, and it wasn't on Netflix or Stan or any of the other streaming services. It was actually on Channel 7 here. Now, we do like our historical detective series, and um, especially when there's something different as well beyond that. So take the 19th century female professional series, for example, the British one, uh, Bramwell, where one of the Redgraves brood played a woman doctor in Victorian London. Uh, Gemma Redgrave would go on to become the chief of the Doctor Who military organisation unit in that series. Well, there's Dr Quinn, medicine woman, with Jane Seymour ministering to the the ills of a small town in 19th century U.S. American West. Um, female lead police and detective series have actually been a thing for a while now. Uh, Anne Francis was the private investigator Honey West in the 1960s. Angie Dickinson was policewoman, followed by the buddy cop series Cagney and Lacey, of course, which yep. was one of my favourites. Um, <laughs> this one Megan will have seen and enjoyed Murder, She Wrote. Yes. Don't even get me started. I love it. Murder, she wrote, solving crimes, Jessica Fletcher, writing books, solving murders, you know, cracking jokes. Fighting werewolves. classic. Fighting werewolves, but that was in um, a different movie, (laughs) (laughs) I think. There have been enough Miss Marple incarnations to make you think that she came from Gallifrey. (laughs) <laughs> and there's a, now there's a whole drawer full of female medical investigators. Yes, Bones. Yes, um, Silent Witness. Just, mm-hmm, they're, mm-hmm. They're, they're everywhere. 
Uh, lately, there's been a bit of a return to female lead historical detective series from the Australian-produced internationally popular Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries, uh, the feature film which we talked about recently, mm-hmm. uh, the 1920s set Frankie Drake Mysteries, created by some of the same producers behind the turn-of-the-century Toronto-based Murdoch Mysteries, and set in the same continuity, I might add, so in, cool. the, in the same universe. Um, And now we've got Miss Scarlet and the Duke, or as I call it, Miss Scarlet and the Duck. Uh, (laughs) uh, And it was at 8.30 on Channel 7, uh, Thursday nights, where they were playing two episodes back-to-back. But Mm. since since there's only six episodes in the first season, they burn through those pretty quickly. (laughs) Um, So you can actually get them on 7 Plus, which is their catch-up channel. Yes, so the good news is all six episodes are there now and they're going to be there for the next nine months. So you can hop on there for free and watch all of them. So do you want to take us through through this one to start with, Megan? Yes, indeed. So on Rob's recommendation, checked out um, Miss Scarlet and the Duke, and it was very easy to find. It was nice that it was on the Seven streaming platform, found it very easily, um, free and available. So I thought I would, and I was happy to see all the episodes were there too. I haven't cracked through them all yet, um, about halfway through. So, but I've got a kind of a bit of an idea. So I'll run us through. So it's a UK Irish production. It originally screened on Alibi in the UK. doesn't really mean much, but uh, it's, as Rob mentioned, it's set in 19th century London. So you can imagine they're really making the most of some set pieces. Costuming is fantastic. Some great hairdos. Just the whole mood of the piece, they're really leaning into that. And I think that's one of the core kind of touchstones of the show that they're, it's a character in itself. Like we've talked a lot about how sometimes the setting or situation is kind of its own character. And I think here they're really using that. So it is sort of a period crime drama. So ostensibly we're using sort of some of the elements of like a Sherlock Holmes type vibe and uh, the aforementioned Miss Fisher, very much a bit of that flavour and elementary as well. I got some dashes. Elementary is obviously a, a contemporary Sherlock Holmes kind of twist story, but I think some of the the energy was and the, the way, sort of the tone of the show I think. Um, was similar to that. So Miss Scarlet, let's start with her. So she's our smart and savvy, strong-willed protagonist, uh, not happy to sit in the background and take on some quote-unquote woman's profession, which I think is probably just wife at this point in time. So she's, she, you know, she's always had an interest in crime. She, her father was a detective and she's always had this sort of interest in murder and solving crimes and, and you know, of course, all these very unladylike pursuits that were not approved of uh, by anyone in her circles. But uh, I don't, look, I don't think this is a spoiler because it does sort of set set up the story and it's sort of written in the descriptions. But her father does die in the first episode and so it's sort of about her taking over that detective agency and the different hurdles of kind of trying to run this female-only detective agency. There's obviously they're not very, uh, at that time, very open to women doing that sort of uh, untoward seeing murders and and things. So that's called into question quite a bit about her ability to do this kind of work. Uh, They don't really let us forget that fact uh, throughout the series. A lot of it is around that she's a woman and this isn't a traditional woman's role. And so kind of the, the legitimate thing she would face trying to do something like that in that time 
So they're not romantic about that, but it's not it's not handled very it's not heavy handed. It's it's very it's still a fairly light hearted depiction. So Eliza is played by Kate Phillips. So she I don't I didn't recognize her because I haven't really seen many of these things, but she's very you know sort of probably fairly well known. So she played Linda Shelby. She was in Peaky Blinders. We, we actually was talked pre- about talked about her when our podcaster Kayla Larson came on. And covered gave, Peaky. Yeah, yeah. And I remember her from that. Yeah, so she's uh, she's in that. So that's the kind of um, sort of a crime underworld London-y type thing. And so I've not done that justice, but uh, you can have a listen to our review <laughs> that Kayla did on Peaky Blinders. Um, she was also Princess Mary in Downton Abbey, of course. Uh, she was in The Crown. She was in a couple of uh, miniseries, Wolf Hall and War and Peace. So she's got a fair share of interesting stuff. In um, in uh, Wolf Hall, she actually played somebody we mentioned just before, Jane Seymour, but not that Jane Seymour. <laughs> uh, and she's she's honestly she's very uh she's lovely in this uh of course she needs uh someone to banter with someone to have a love-hate relationship with so I mean where I'm at there's probably more animosity than heat but I can see what they're setting up here so our, our fella in question is William Wellington so he's also known as the Duke they have sort of a history together. They're family friends. He knew her father. And he's, of course, uh, in the reputable role of Scotland Yard inspector. So he has the clout. He has the respect. And, you know, from her perspective, he's sort of um, wasting that sort of, you know, he has these certain privileges and and whatnot. So he's a bit of a lout. He's got a lot of vices. He's still a good guy uh, and he does want to do a good job at, you know, detecting things, but he's quite dismissive of her as well. And I think that's sort of what we're setting up as well is this playing off of he's got the job and, uh, but there's certain things that only she is good at sort of spotting. Mm. And uh, that's played, he's played by Stuart Martin. So he hasn't done too much TV. So he was in a couple of things, uh, Jamestown and Medici. I haven't really heard of those. They're British TV. He had a bit part in Game of Thrones, but it looks to me that he's mostly done a lot of video game voice work. So he was, uh, he did some assorted voices in Assassin's Creed 3, 4 and Rogue and Far Cry 3. So it looks like he sort of dabbled a bit here and there. And um, I think he's been cast as much for his look as anything. He's kind of got a bit of a rugged, oldie kind of the light Hugh Jackman-esque thing going on for him. Um, so that's kind of where we we start from. We've got our characters. It's it's fairly lighthearted drama. There's small mysteries and crimes to solve per episode. Uh, it does tackle some interesting issues. Like it sort of brings up a lot about this gender equality, um, some other themes around sexuality. Obviously a lot of things of the time would have been quite different. Um, in terms of what was outwardly accepted. And they're trying to include these things deliberately. Her, her abilities are called into question a lot just from the fact she's a woman, where she can go, what she can do, different privileges that she's not afforded that are afforded to men in the industry, and just her sort of those kinds of struggles. But it's 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 having fun. It's not trying to do this in a way that's meant to be very serious. It's kind of low-stakes situations for our heroine, um, the cases are, are fairly, I mean, what was your, I've sort of rabbled on a bit. What was your sort of take on on the, the energy of this, Rob? 
Well, I, I thought that the and, – and you know me, I'm big on the police procedural. I, mm. I thought that they – I thought they coped quite well with that. Um, the, mm. cri- the crimes mm. were – the crimes were okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, they, they, yeah. They lived up to my, my Moriarty-mentored standards. <laughs> uh, and And – I think it was important that they leaned in quite early uh, into the suffragette movement. So, I mean, this is what this is where the series, what the series gimmick is, and I think it was good that they addressed that quite early on. Uh, there is a there is a fair old little arc story arc running between the six episodes. Um, I've sort of dipped into it along the way, but I did actually mm. sit down mm. and watch most of the pilot, uh, and. I thought the energy that they've got going between um, Miss Scarlet and the Duke, uh, mm-hmm. it's very much like Miss Fisher. You know, yeah, got absolutely. The, you know, you've got the stand-up policeman, although perhaps mm-hmm. not quite so stand-up in the case of the Duke. Um, look, he lives in riotous times and he's expected to be a bit of a lad and a hard drinker and a womanizer. It goes with the position practically. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And And like you said, I mean, the cases – from what I've seen, they're fine. They're interesting enough. They're fairly small fry. They're, we're not getting any sort of massively amazing revelations. No. The conclusions are satisfying enough, I think. I think they do what they're meant to do. But that's kind of what you expect from an episode-to-episode kind of murder mystery type vibe. Um, there are some different scenarios and characters that kind of parade through the episodes. We've got a, a couple of um, side characters that sort of recur so Rupert Parker is a, a friend of um, Miss Scarlet's. He's played by Andrew Gower. So I kind of like where that, that relationship, that friendship is going. He was uh, the actor Andrew Gower was in Carnival Row. He's also been in Midsummer Murders, uh, episode of Black Mirror, Outlander, Being Human, that kind of thing. So he's, you know, he's been around the, the genre block. And of course, we do have her father, Henry Scarlet. So he did, he does die, but he, you know, there's always opportunities to reprise a great character. So he's played by Kevin Doyle. Uh, Kevin Doyle, we've all, of course, seen in Downton Abbey as well. He also played something called Ghost Detective in the show called Paranoid. That got me intrigued. Um, and he was in Midsummer Murders as well. So we've got a couple of recurring characters that we can see, but the show is very much hinged on Miss Scarlet and her character and kind of her adventures. And I do think she does have a a quite nice rapport with um, Martin as the inspector. So I guess some overall thoughts. Uh, From me, I think it's enjoyable, very watchable. I kept watching for the sort of crime, the mystery element and the setting, which I quite enjoyed. I don't necessarily think it's the most engaging overall, but I haven't, I haven't finished it yet. And I think there's probably some more things in store for me, but I did definitely find it enjoyable. There's some good stuff there. The mood is good. Uh, it's pretty easy watching, if not a uh, must watch. What was your kind of vibe from what you've seen of it, Rob? Well, I think I rather more enjoy um, the Murdoch mysteries or it's, uh, or it's sort of spin off uh, Frankie Drake series but because they they actually lock into the uh the times and they're more actual they've also got a bit of a science fiction element those shows too sure yeah Uh, but this one this one's quite serviceable in its own way um i I particularly liked um ansu kavia playing the character of moses who's from the wrong side of the track of course and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. he's he's sort of cast in the role of the villain who's 
bemusedly finds himself working with the detective. Uh, <laughs> That's true. I did forget to, I neglected to mention him, but I think I can see now they're starting to bring him in a bit more mm. into the, uh, become a bit more recurring. So keep an eye out for that. And a, and a shout out to uh, Leonie Prendergast, the uh, the costume designer for Miss mm-hmm. Scarlet and the Duke. Uh, we've seen her work before in Reign of Fire, Becoming Jane, and Ripper Street, Ooh. ironically enough. And she's done a really fine job of of giving Miss Scarlet the costumes of the times with a little bit of a boost because she is, after all, the main character. But um, my partner, Gail, did point out something that I missed, that she wears the same dress several times throughout the series, so she's rotating through her wardrobe. And because she's not really a rich person as such, you know, not not, mm. not really upper class, um, mm. it, it's interesting that she's able to do that and that they've depicted that in the show. Yeah. And the setting the setting looks good too. The uh, But then, you know, this is the sort of thing that English television shows do so well, giving you exactly. the, the period feel. Um, yeah, look, I, I – I'm going to go back and catch up with the episodes that I haven't seen because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I think that it's it's a worthwhile show. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's great that they're making stuff like this. I always think a nice little crime caper is fun. I like if they're adding that Victorian element and doing a nice job of making use of it yeah. and not just making it a backdrop. I think that's nice but not hammering the point too much. Uh, like I say, it's pleasant enough. I, I don't – I couldn't fault it even if it doesn't sort of overly excite me. So, yeah, it's on. It's available. You can watch it on Seven's streaming platform, Seven Plus. Uh, you can access that for free. It's called Miss Scarlet and the Duke. There are six episodes. They're about 40 minutes or so per episode, and uh, there's just one season. It's only come out this year. Mm. So, But there is a second season in the works apparently. And I think it has a bit of a little cult fan base as well. I think that sort of there's some loyal fans of it. So it's kind of cool that we're getting some of this content. And it's always nice to cover something that's free to air as well. I wonder I wonder what they call the fan base. Are they like um They're called Scar Scarleters or something like that. I saw it online when I was looking for some um info about it. I can't remember now, but they've got their own little name. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> you need a name. If you're a fan base, you have to have your fan base name. Oh, and and and, and well done to um is it K-pop fans who managed to Yes. managed to uh to roll uh, <laughs> the, the Trump rally in Tulsa by reg- yes. registering for far too many tickets and not showing up. I K-pop fans can do so much. Uh I stand so, yeah, I, I definitely, there's a lot of good news. There's some good news stuff happening out there, and I think it's nice to see people with a common interest can turn that passion into, you know, a force for good as much as what's in your control. So, go fandom. <laughs> exactly. We love good nerds no matter what you're nerding out about. So, now for a, uh, a suitably Victorian um, ending for the show today, we're going to have a track from Penny Dreadful Season 2, Abel. Kozanowski's The Unquiet Grave, which certainly fits all manner of detective series. <laughs> and Joe Brunatic coming up next with Astral Glamour. And thank you, Megan. Thank you, Rob. And thank you to Kayla, our podcaster. 
G'day, this is Rob Jan. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website.